As I said, we are really in the meat of the letter now. Paul has been talking about justification by faith. And you remember I've said a good shorthand way to think of justification is not just as if I'd never sinned. No, it's actually better than that. It's just as if I had the righteousness of Christ. Uh, Or the better way to put it is um, the death that you should have died, the life you should have lived, you get credit for that. And thus you are beautiful in God's sight. That's what it means to be justified. Now, tonight, Paul's going to dig in deeper into how, how this actually works. I, I know when I went off to college, I had a very superficial, vague idea that salvation was somehow connected to Jesus dying for my sins. I didn't really understand much of the mechanics of it at all. And as a matter of fact, I had two roommates who were just all over the map as far as their ideas and their beliefs. And I didn't know how to interact with them because I didn't really know what I believed. I kind of by sheer willpower was holding on to this idea that Jesus somehow died for me. Uh, but I don't really know anything about why that even matters or why he did that or how it connects to me. I just know that I've heard that and I pray to prayer and I think that I shouldn't let go of that. But it wasn't power in my life. It wasn't power. It may be sort of, I guess, dealt with my fear about going to hell one day, but it wasn't power. The gospel is supposed to be power. Back in chapter 1, he said, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And my contention is, if you have a vague understanding of what it is and how it works, it will never be power. And that's why the Apostle Paul wrote this, the letter to the Romans the longest explanation of the gospel that is in the entire New Testament. And he wrote it to people that he says in chapter 1 are literally world famous for their faith. He says in chapter 1, your faith is being reported all over the world. So to people who are literally world famous for their faith, he gives them the longest explanation of the gospel because the gospel is to be power. It's not something that we're just sort of kind of have a vague idea about. Well, then my freshman year, uh, first semester, I was going to a church and they preached a sermon there that really made me question whether or not I could lose my salvation. And I didn't really have much ability to interact with it because I didn't know anything about the Bible. I just knew like some things that I'd heard that I believed. And I would tell you that for about three or four years... It just sort of sapped all the spiritual energy out of me. I thought, if I'm really going to pursue hard after God and then maybe like completely lose it all, what's the point anyway? Oh, I kept going to church and I didn't, you know, get caught up in like riotous living, but there was no joy. There was no power. Years, years later, I heard Tim Keller, pastor up in New York, who's retired now. I heard him say this. Assurance, being sure of your standing in God's favor, assurance of your salvation is the power to live the Christian life. That if you're unsure about what God thinks about you, then even the Christian things that you're trying to do are not done out of joy. They're done out of trying to make sure that God still likes you. 
And you know what? I don't know if you've ever been in a relationship with somebody where they just make you feel really self-conscious and insecure all the time. You're not really sure what they think about you. Maybe it's a dating relationship or maybe it's a parent. Um, but you, it just makes you sort of self-conscious and, and sort of, you know, you just can't do anything. And for a lot of us, that's what our relationship with God is like. Certainly is if we don't really understand what it means to be justified, to be beautiful in God's sight, and why we can know that. Why we can know that. That's what this passage tonight is about. The gospel saves. The gospel will never let us down. But how do we know that? Let's look at Romans chapter 5. Pick up at verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, this is where he gets to the nitty-gritty, how, how all this works, how he can say all that. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. You know, let me just help you understand. In verse 12, Paul starts to make a contrast. As soon as he hears it come out of his mouth, he's like, hold on, hold on. But it's not like it this way, this way, this way, this way for about five verses. And he's going to pick up at verse 18. That's why I'm trying to read it like it's an extended parenthesis, because that's kind of what it is. We go on, verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, Death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, he's back to verse 12, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me pray and then we'll dig into this. Oh Lord, we do thank you that you go the extra mile to explain to us 
how this all works so that we could be sure that you really have been satisfied, that you really do look at us as being clothed in the beauty and righteousness of your precious son, Jesus. Oh, help us to believe that and to live out of that. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. So I said, the gospel saves us. That's, the, that's kind of the heart of what he's talking about. And it's never going to let us down. But how do we know that? Right? I, one of the ways we know is that justification, this peace with God, look at verse 6, came to us when? When we were helpless. It came to us when we were helpless. That means we didn't have anything to do with it. I don't know if you really understand helpless, helpless, helpless. I don't know if I did until I had open heart surgery in April. And literally, like when I came home, my wife can testify to this. If I walked, some, a lot of you have been in our living room. Our living room's not big. It's maybe eight steps to walk from one end to the other. But if I walked those eight steps from one to the other, my body literally couldn't manage my temperature. I would walk eight steps and I would just be freezing because my body couldn't regulate temperature. That's weakness, <laughs> right? And, and, and what Paul's trying to get you to understand is you're that weak when it comes to having faith in God. You can't look at your faith or anything that you could contribute and feel good about it. You don't. You can't. But the good news and the reason that we can have confidence is because grace came to us when we were helpless. It's not a reward for seeing that you wanted it really bad or that you did something or you refrained from doing some things that made you better than somebody else. No, it's not a wage in any sort of way. That was chapter 3 and chapter 4. It comes to us while we're helpless, and it comes to us by sheer grace. Because we didn't deserve for Jesus to die for us. I mean, he says, nobody dies for somebody else. Oh, maybe for a good man, somebody might possibly die. But that's not even worth comparing to what actually happened in the gospel. Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. Now, we live in a world where we don't take the idea of sinners very seriously. But, but you have to understand what that means. It means that Jesus died for people that were spitting in his face saying, I don't want anything to do with you. And he said, I won't take no for an answer. I would rather die than live without you. Why does that help us? Well, it helps you to know that if your salvation was not based upon your strength or whether or not you deserved the grace of God, well, then you don't have to worry about how undeserving you really are because it has nothing to do with it. See, you've got to think of it this way. Now, I don't know how many of you guys do math. This is Belmont after all. But I think you can follow, you can follow this, right? That if you have Christ's work plus you equals salvation, what's the problem? Well, you're a variable, right? And if you're a variable, I think I remember algebra, right? Then what's on the other side of the equal sign is a variable too. But that's not how it works. Christ's work equals salvation and peace and faith and life. And these may go up and down, but it's secured. 
Salvation can't go away because it's based on what Jesus did, right? And, and then Paul goes beyond that. He says, okay, his death did all that, but imagine the power of being united to him in his resurrection life. Look at what he says in verse 9. Since, therefore, we have been justified by his blood, as if that's not enough, much more, he says, shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now here he's talking, not salvation the way we tend to talk about it, about whether you're a Christian or not. Here he's talking particularly about the final judgment. How do we know that we will be saved in the final judgment? Well, it's because not only did Jesus die for us, but he lived for us and we live with him. Look at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So we died with him and we lived with him. We're alive with him. And that can't be undone. The only way that could be undone is if Jesus would die again. Because he can't die again and you're united to him, you can't die. Do you understand? You've already died. You've already been judged. We know what God thinks about the life and death of Jesus. He said right at the very end of Jesus' life, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And, and he said with the resurrection, everything required was suffered by Jesus. Therefore, death can't hold him anymore. So if Jesus can't die again, then you can't lose the favor of God that has been secured by his life and his death. That's a big deal, right? That's why, you know, Charles Wesley sang in that hymn that we, that we did to lead off. Alive in him, my living head. That means my, my representative. And we're going to talk about that uh, here in a minute. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. What does he say? Bold I approach the eternal throne, and claim the crown through Christ my own. I've died with him. If you're a Christian, you've been united to him in his death. The death that you deserved has been dead. It's been died. And the life that Jesus has, the resurrected life, you're united with him in that, and he can't die again. Do you understand what a big deal this is? Thus, we have real hope. And then Paul actually several times in this passage uses this kind of argument. It's an argument that the rabbis used a lot. It's not the way we argue so much today. But I think when you see it here, you'll understand um, what he's saying here. Basically, if God already did the difficult thing, then the easy thing, you can have great confidence he'll do it. What was the difficult thing? Reconciling his enemies to himself. He did that by the death of Jesus. What's the easy thing? Holding on to his friends. <laughs> You're his friends now. The hard thing was making you his friends because you were his enemies. But now that you're his friends, of course he's not going to let you go. That's what Paul's saying here. He did the difficult thing. He saved us by his dying. He can surely preserve us now that he is alive. And you know what that does? Look at verse 11. More than that, we also what? Rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and particularly through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul wants us to sit 
in the glory of reconciliation. I was God's enemy, but now I'm his friend. Now I've been adopted into his family. Remember I told the story of Mephibosheth last, year, last week. He's the guy who deserved by all rights to be put to death. He was Saul's grandson, That Saul, the guy who tried to kill David. And when David came to the throne, David says, where is he? And he brings him to the palace. And instead of saying off with his head, he says, Mephibosheth, you are going to eat at my table like a royal son for the rest of your life. That's the difficult thing. That's the thing that God already did. Been reconciled. And Paul wants us to sit in that and just stew in it, right? I, I was reading this one uh, commentator. Got, commentators are people that write, you know, kind of verse by verse explanations, thoughts about what the different books of the Bible mean. This guy, C.B. Cranfield, um, wonderful, wonderful uh, commentary in Romans. He had this amazing thought. He said this, only Christians rejoice in reconciliation, which is a deeply personal concept rather than mere forgiveness. There are religions that are happy and would even like hold up the idea of being forgiven, but Christians celebrate and rejoice in reconciliation. Do you know the difference? Forgiveness is, okay, you're off scot-free, go live however you want. Reconciliation is you've been brought into the family and live out of that new restored relationship. In many ways, you could say what's wrong with humanity is not that we've just broken the rules, but we've ruptured a relationship. And therefore, forgiveness is not what God wants. He wants us to be reconciled. He wants that relationship restored, and that's what we have in the gospel. So a, a, a couple diagnostic questions from this. I took this from a, an old thing that Tim Keller wrote years ago. I, I'll just say it quickly, and you can meditate on it a little bit, chew on it later. But I, I wonder what I've just been talking about. Is that your experience of the gospel? In, in other words, are, are you sitting in this and rejoicing in this in a way that it has transformed your heart, because that's what Paul's talking about. He's not saying, hey, I want you to, to know this theology stuff so that you can get an A on the theology exam. No, he says, I want you to know this so that it would melt your heart as you sit in it and rejoice in it. J.I. Packer said the best way to grow as a Christian is to take what you know about God and turn it into a matter of prayer and meditation and praise before the face of God. So if you know this, do you rejoice in it? And, he, and here's what he says, how do you know if you're rejoicing in your reconciliation? A couple ideas. Number one, your mind is deeply satisfied with the doctrine of justification by faith. You rejoice in it by studying it, meditating on it. You want to really understand what does it mean to be justified? You only think of your past in terms of it, of your justification, of your reconciliation. You don't say, oh, what a mess I've made of it. You say, me, a Christian? A friend of God in whom he rejoices, despite my deep flaws, despite my record? That's what it means to rejoice in it. When you discover in yourself some surprising new character flaw, and you will, fear, lack of self-control, does the discovery make you doubt God's love, or does it make you even more thankful 
for what he's done in reconciling you. See, the thing is, when you become a Christian, you think you're grateful, but you don't know half of what he died for. You don't. And the, longer, the more you dig into that, the more you fight against sin, the more you find out, oh, this is a really big deal. Like, I thought I just, you know, was doing okay. I'm actually much worse than I thought, but that means what he did was much bigger than I realize, right? That's the way it's supposed to work. When your conscience accuses you with reference to your performance, you don't answer and make excuses like, well, I had a bad day or I'm under a lot of stress. Instead, you appeal to the cross. Martin Luther was great at this. He used to say, when the devil comes to you and accuses you and say you're a miserable piece of crap, don't argue with the devil. Instead, say to the devil, devil, that's true, and I'm actually worse. You don't even know the half of it. But go take it up with Jesus because he lived and died in my place, and I've got nothing to say to you. Right? Yeah. The way John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, said it in one of his wonderful hymns, Approach My Soul, the Mercy Seat. He put it this way. He says, Be thou my shield and hiding place that sheltered near thy side. I may my fierce accuser face and tell him thou hast died. Right? Well, God wants us to understand how the gospel works so that we can be confident of these things and have even more reason to rejoice in these things. And the way he gets into this is talking about Adam and Christ, how they represent others. They're not just individuals. And you might say, okay, I didn't see that coming. Part of the reason we don't see this coming, I I think as modern people in the West, is we tend to think very individualistically. We tend to think of ourselves as individuals. That's not the way most cultures and most time periods have thought about things. And it's certainly not the way God thinks about humanity, as we see here, right? So this gets us down now into verse 12. And I'm going to try and explain kind of what's going on here, because it's really helpful. It's really important. Um, So Paul basically is going to make a contrast uh, between, well, he's going to start out by saying there's a similarity between Adam and Christ. There is a similarity because both of them represent a whole group of people. But as soon as he hears himself say they're just alike, he's like horrified that those words even came out of his mouth. And he spends like five verses backpedaling and saying all the ways that they're not alike before he finally gets back to the thought, okay? That's the train of thought. So he says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, and then he's going to say, so justification and salvation came through one man, the man Christ. Uh, He actually calls Christ the second Adam in one of his other letters, right? So he he makes this kind of comparison a lot, but it's like as soon as he says it, and and I think the, the way to understand this is Paul is in like worship mode here. You understand? Like he's rejoicing. He's not just telling us to rejoice. Even as he's rehearsing what we should rejoice in, he's rejoicing himself. And so as soon as he says Christ is like Adam, he's like, ah, he's like horrified. Right? Because he's in worship mode. And, and, and the sight of the beauty of Jesus is so huge. So, so he has to kind of backtrack, right? Um, he, he says, Basically, well, yeah, he's not like him in this, 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 this way. And then he finally gets back to, but he is like him in this important regard. And it's what theologians call federal headship. Now, we actually live in a federal republic. 
So maybe there might be some like ways that we can understand this a little bit. The, Paul's whole argument here in verse 12 to the end of the chapter depends on this concept of federal headship. The Bible contends that one person can represent a whole group of people. That Adam's one sin affected the whole group of people. All those for whom he is the federal head or the representative, which is everyone. And in the same way, Christ's life and death can affect a whole group of people, the people that he is the federal head of. Now, again, I said this is a difficult concept for us because we very much are like, you know, you should get what you deserve. You, don't, you, don't, you shouldn't get credit for what somebody else did, and you really shouldn't get blamed for something that somebody else did. But I'm telling you, if you reject the idea of federal headship, then you lose the gospel. Okay? Now... A couple things that maybe help you. One, like I said, Western individualism is what really what makes this hard for us to, to track. But think about this. Even in our own country here, there is actually a federal representative thing that's going on. Listen, you know, there's all kinds of crazy stuff going on in the world today, right? And if our president declares war and the Congress goes along with it, at least that's how it's supposed to work, then um, you're at war whether you voted for him or not. Right? You are. This is federal headship. And you might say, well, gosh, how, how fair is it for Adam to represent me? He was a screw up. No, he wasn't. He was made without sin. He, he, he was way better than you. You would have failed worse and quicker. Okay? It's true. So, but be it as it may, what Paul's saying is, Adam sinned and we all sinned in him. He's not just saying, though this is also true, that we follow his bad example, that we inevitably do the same thing. He's saying, no, his one sin made us sinners. And, and, you, and you're like, okay, I, I don't know if I like that. Well, then how are you going to make sense of what he says about one act of righteousness that justified us and reconciled us. That's how it works, right? Now, he says here in verse 12 that all sinned. And, and he goes on, he says, and the fact that everyone dies proves that they're sinners. And he says, now, I know that Adam actually broke an explicit command. God said, don't do that. And he did it, okay? And then from Adam until Moses... You didn't have the Ten Commandments. People were still sinners, and we know that because they died. Death came into the world because of sin. Human death came into the world because of sin. And, and therefore, he says, death reigned. That shows that Adam's sin went to everybody. But eventually, the Mosaic Law comes, and it actually magnifies sin. It makes it more clear. It makes it more obvious. But we were still sinners because of what Adam did, not because of what Moses did. God, in giving the law, actually was trying to show us how hopeless we really are that we would turn to him and cry out for mercy, right? So sin is in the world. The law magnifies our guilt. It's like a magnifying glass. It doesn't change reality, but you see it more clearly, right? And the point is, what he's saying here, that there's just no way to read the Greek, if you look at verse 12 in light of verse 13 and 14, in particular verse 15 where he says the many died by the trespass of the one man, there's no way to get around 
Adam's one act of disobedience made us all sinners. That's his point. That's his point. But we have to see the contrast between Adam and Christ to really marvel at the gospel. So this federal headship is the key. And and as Paul then begins to even talk about the differences, the similarity is one man, one man's action counts for a whole group of people, okay? But as soon as he begins to talk about the, the, uh, the contrast, the way Christ is different than Adam, then he gets back into worship mode. And so should we. He says, basically, Adam's sin was about selfishness, but Christ's death was about generosity. Yeah, I know that each one act, like, counted for everybody. Okay, they're similar in that way, but you can't even compare them. You can't compare selfishness with a death that was all about generosity. One sin resulted in death for all, but Jesus came and died for those who'd committed tons of sins. Again, you can't even begin to compare them. And in verse 17, he says that through Adam's sin, death reigned. Sin has made a ruin of everything. But in Christ, it's not just that we get life. We ourselves will reign. Look at this, verse 17. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Tim Keller puts it this way, in the new kingdom of Christ, we become kings ourselves. Christ's kingship made us kings, but sin's kingship made us slaves. And again, you can't even compare them. There's another contrast with regard to Christ's power, because Christ's power is so much greater than Adam's. Many of us over these last few years have come to feel the power of death. More than maybe you ever have before, but it can't even begin to compare with Christ's power. The effect of Adam's sin bringing death is powerless in the face of the effect of what Christ's death and resurrection has done. Death cannot stand in the face of Christ's power. All right, let me, let me close with coming back to this idea. Representation. It's at the heart of the gospel. If you reject this idea of federal headship, you want to insist on getting what you deserve, well, I don't think you want that. You're rejecting the gospel and the comfort it brings. It's only because we are in Christ, in union with him, that we get the blessings of the gospel. And what Paul's arguing here in Romans 5 is you're either in Christ or you're in Adam. Either one or the other represents you. He says it over and over and over again, right? And the big point is this. What you get in the gospel, you get because you are in Christ. He represents you. And thus what he gets, you get. It all transfers to you if you are in union with him by faith. Maybe you've heard this illustration, you've probably heard me use it before, of, you know, God has a book and he writes down in it everything you've ever thought, everything you've ever done, right? And some people would say, well, the good thing about being a Christian is, like, the book just gets wiped clean, and when God opens the covers, like, there's nothing in there. That's not 
what this is. That's not the goodness of the gospel. What, what Paul's talking about here is you either have Adam's book or you have Christ's book. And when you become a Christian, he switches the covers and he opens up your book and it's full of beauty. The beautiful life that Jesus lived. The one who said, it's my meat and drink to do the will of my Father. Don't you long to be like that? Don't you long for that? Well, that's what you have credit for. Now live into that. Rather than being self-conscious, just say, I'm set free. Right? That's union with Christ. It really is, like if you go through the Bible, that phrase, in Christ, is everywhere. And here in Romans 5, Paul's talking about why that matters. Right? It's, it, it's everywhere. Sometimes it talks about how we're in Christ. Sometimes it says that Christ is in us. It's the two ways of saying the same thing. We are in union with Christ. We're as closely connected as you could possibly be. The phrase in Christ appears 164 times in Paul's letters alone. It's obviously central to the way he understands this. And, and here's two last points. Union with Christ means that we are not saved by a legal fiction, but we are actually constituted righteous in Christ. In other words, God doesn't just pretend that we're righteous. He doesn't. If you are united to Christ, then you are righteous in God's sight. It's not a legal fiction. And this union makes us righteous in God's sight. This is 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him, there's that phrase, we might become what? The righteousness of God. You have more in Christ than you would have had if Adam had never sinned. Right? That's true. Um, well, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? <laughs> And, and here's what's interesting. The book of Romans, Paul anticipates objections regularly. And if you object the way he anticipates, you know that you're tracking with him. Do you know what comes right after this? Chapter 6, verse 1. It says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, why does Paul say that? Because he says, what I just explained to you, that you're either in Adam or you're in Christ, and you didn't have anything to do with it. It was his sheer power and grace that saved you. Well, Paul, if you tell people that, what's to make them live holy lives? You can't tell people that. You can't tell them it doesn't matter how they live, that God's grace to them in Christ comes to them no matter how bad they've been. You can't tell people that. That's crazy. Paul expects you to say that. And if you don't say that, if you're not a little bit uncomfortable with how free grace is, you don't get it yet. Because Paul expects you to say, whoa, that's, that's, a, little, that's a little too good to be true. And he says, no, it's not. But that's what we're going to pick up next week. Paul expects this teaching to make us uncomfortable. If it doesn't make us uncomfortable, then go back and rejoice in your reconciliation again because it needs to get deeper into your heart and it needs to get deeper into mine.